This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now, it's time to decentralize. But for those of you that are here today, welcome. You have landed in the Decentralized Trials Club here on Clubhouse. We gather here on Fridays, 12 to 1 Eastern, and cover a range of different topics related to the successful execution of decentralized clinical trials. The topics come from you, our community and the audience. Uh, we've covered here topics from the technical to the, to the human factors involved, from change to other uh, considerations around diversity and other elements. Uh, our guests also come from you in the audience. And so while we may be taking a few weeks off in July, if you have topics you'd like to cover or uh, would like to join us as a guest, let Amir and I know and we'll put you in the queue for when we come back together. The, the other thing, Craig, I think we'll be remiss in not mentioning is uh, while the both of us were in DIA, we had an enormous number of people, quite frankly, come up to us saying they do listen even maybe afterwards and um they really enjoyed coming to the clubhouse and listening to recordings so you know i really want to thank anyone who comes up as speakers and joins because i do think people do find value in this and i was very happy to hear that so we'll definitely be continuing the journey but it was certainly lovely hearing from people the other thing i will say is that if any of you try to come to our meetup and we're one of the 100 people in the cool downstairs corridor waiting to get up there and we were at capacity uh, we're really sorry about that uh we, apparently we were the most popular party at dia so i guess we can't complain about that but uh, uh sorry to anyone who happened to not be able to get into the cool party well dia was certainly interesting this year and maybe if we have some time we can talk about any other uh takeaways and observations but certainly um Clinical trials on wheels felt like a growing theme given the exhibit hall was anchored by two mobile sites uh, docked and parked in the exhibit hall. We'll see. Uh, perhaps we'll come back in, uh, in, uh, later in the summer with some of the leaders from those initiatives and see how they're working. Well, for today, and by the way, just another quick reminder, sorry, and then we'll jump into today's topic. Uh, you can tap decentralized trials at the top of your screen on Clubhouse. You can see more about the club, follow if you do not follow right now, and access replays of all the gatherings we've had dating back to December. So lots of great content and conversations there. Hopefully enough to satiate if you do need company for lunch on your Fridays during the month of July. We... Um, are delighted to welcome uh, three friends joining us for this conversation today, Alex, Kim, and Julie. And today we're going to 
demystify a bit around some myths in the decentralized space. We'll start with one in particular, but then maybe we can open up for those that may be on your mind. And so we'll have a conversation for the first half of an hour and then look forward to opening up the room to hear your questions, perspectives, and what myths do you like to bust? What are those prevailing myths on your mind that stand in the way of successfully executing decentralized trials? Today's topic was queued up by our friend Alex over at Vault Health. Alex, maybe we can get started with you if you don't mind coming off mute. Introduce yourself for friends in the audience that have not met you and share a little bit of perspective both on what you have going on, but what helped to set up this topic for today? Yeah, Craig, thank you so much and and really appreciate being here again. Um, this, is, this is a really fun forum to talk about areas of trials and specifically decentralized trials that, um, you know, they're really sort of <clears throat> topical areas to touch on today. And, you know, to give a little bit of background, so I'm, I'm, a, um, I'm an MD-PhD research scientist and a clinician entrepreneur who... Um, who is focused on building out the clinical research function at Vault Health, um, you know, a decentralized uh, healthcare technology and clinical research company that has built up a large national and soon to be international practice and, and um, services and technology capabilities in the clinical research space. And, and you know, what, what prompted this to keep it, to keep things brief and comments brief on my side so folks can weigh in and we can get into the discussion is really, as we work with clients, partners, sponsors, CROs, academic healthcare centers, clinical practices, other types of sites, and really the swath of stakeholders in the clinical research space, there's, you know, there's a lot of both head scratching as well as assumption making around, you know, what is this in air quotes, DCT concept? What is and really what are the bounds of it and you know what we've seen a lot of and and i don't know how the audience and the rest of this and the rest of the discussants today feel about this but what we've seen a lot of is you know black or white thinking around what a decentralized trial is and isn't and what we've also come to realize as we you know optimize on the patient experience and the experience of the clinical study team is that there are a thousand and one ways to proverbially skin this cat and no one way is right and every way that every trial is different and what needs to be done right is the optimization of the experience again for the patient and the clinical study team um, so we are at a point now in the availability of technology the um the changes that have occurred as a function as a large part of the function of the pandemic in expanding access to clinical and clinical research services in i'll say the community but really you know on 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 the let's just say in the patient home and outside of physical clinical trial sites you know that allow for an amalgam and optimization again i've used that word three times now but i really mean it um of the way that patients can be accessed and be allowed to participate. Now we've touched on this in a variety of ways, but the point of this was to, you know, to demystify what some of the assumptions out there are 
about DCTs and what they are and what they aren't, and really what you know hybridization means in, in today's clinical research um, space. Alex, since you set it up, how do you define a decentralized trial? <laughs> I love it, Craig. Um, so look, I'll just go into it from the I'll I'll just go into it from the black and white definition, right? And the black and white definition is a decentralized trial is a trial that is not based at a physical clinical trial site at all. And the, the, the problem with the concept of a clinical trial, I say the benefit of the concept of a clinical trial of a decentralized clinical trial is that it's aspirational, meaning there are very few true therapeutic areas that allow themselves to be to, 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 uh, sorry, that really lend themselves to full decentralization. Um, but there are a heck of a lot of therapeutic areas. I would say, I, I, would, I would posit essentially all of them that lend themselves to hybridization. And so backing into what a decentralized clinical trial is in the reality, if you're going to use the catchphrase, it's... <clears throat> the ability to take elements of the schedule of assessments and not require them to be done at a physical clinical trial site while really striving. And I think we have the capability in large part now, and, and we need to be thoughtful about this as the gatekeepers, along with all the partners and stakeholders, we have the ability to rigorously gather the data that we need that still gets us from zero to one in clinical development. So what I would say a DCT should be considered now is the true amalgam of the combination of physical and non-physical clinical trial site um, engagement for the patient and the clinical study staff. So um, Alex, hi, it's Amir here. Um, and I know there's people in the audience probably chomping in a bit to talk about this, but I'll just acknowledge the fact that we uh, launched uh, externally for the first time the glossary from DTRA that does you know defines more than a hundred terms I think, and um, it will be a living document. I mean the first thing you said was it is not at a physical site. I mean to my mind actually a DCT could absolutely incorporate you know people going to a physical site for all their visits possibly, and to me it's a set of methodologies that will enable you know different components of the trial to possibly not going to a physical site, right? And, and I would say, Amir, so, so yes, you said it, you said it right. And I'm sorry if I wasn't clear, I'm trying to come from the perspective of what we are hearing as a vendor in the space and what the assumptions and myths are around Got it. a DCT Thank is. you. Appreciate that. Okay. Great. Thanks, Alex. Julie, welcome. Please come on off mute and share a little bit with the audience on who you are, what you work on today, and your initial thoughts on today's topic of decentralized trials and some of the myths out there that we may start to conquer. Thanks so much, Craig, and, and everyone for inviting me uh, to join this discussion. So I'm Julie Lin. Um, I'm a global project head in rare disease at Sanofi. 
Um, I have spent most of my industry career on, on rare diseases, uh, and especially in early clinical development, although some late clinical development as well. Um, my training is as a kidney specialist and a nephrologist, but I have worked on both kidney and non-kidney uh, rare disease uh, projects. Um, I, I work with Kim and I think we, uh, I was speaking with her and, and other people in her uh, clinical operations group, um, because we do have some um, decentralized clinical trial approaches going on in, in programs that I'm involved with. I was, um, these are global studies across many countries. Um, the use of decentralized clinical trial approaches came about, uh, was accelerated, I would say, by the pandemic situation. This was a way that we could continue to get uh, patients in um, into trials and have them participate in the clinical trial even uh, during the height of the pandemic. What it struck me uh, when I, I started uh, working these programs is that there is a, quite a variability, it seemed like, in countries and what clinical DCT elements they seem to allow. So for instance, something like a drug delivery, um, you know, seem to be more commonly allowed, um, but home nursing visits, for example, um, appear to not be consistently allowed. There, there was variability in, in different countries. And I, I thought this was really interesting because uh, in my experience and in my philosophical philosophical outlook, it seems that especially for rare disease, we really are doing a tremendous service to the participants enrolled in our study, as well as to their families by trying to lower the bar, make their participation in clinical trials um, as, as easy as possible for them. So that's, um, you know, when I got, I'm, I'm very interested in, in, in DCTs overall. I do think it's the way of the future. I don't see that uh, for, especially when you're looking at a new study drug, a brand new um, potential uh, therapeutic, it, it can't be completely uh, decentralized because of the need to have, um, you know, very close checks, uh, especially for safety. And Julie, I think you just set up a great topic for us that we'll dig into here in a few minutes, which is uh, managing the global variability that on a country by country basis we may have to operate a little bit differently and can we do that and how do we how do we manage that both from a just an oversight and operational perspective but also with internal expectations can you take slightly different approaches on a country by country basis within one study framework and is that even new or have we actually been doing that for a very long time? Kim, it's great to see you here. I look forward to seeing you in person one of these days again soon. <laughs> but uh, please introduce yourself for the audience and maybe share some of your initial thoughts on this topic today. Yeah, th thanks again. Thanks again for uh, the invitation. It's, it's good to uh, quote unquote, see you both. <laughs> 
Um, so Kim Hawkins, um, I work with Julie at Santa Fe, and uh, I am head of the clinical project operations group at Santa Fe. Um, that's the, the clinical operation leadership across the portfolio. I call that my day job. Um, and on the side, uh, I'm involved in the IMI trials at home project, uh, which is a 32 company uh, consortium uh, looking at uh, DCT implementation in Europe. Um, so definitely a uh, topic that's close to my heart. Um, I think we've, we at Santa Fe have taken a, a bit of a leap um, in the beginning and, and really tried to implement a lot of uh, fully virtual um, hybrid approaches, um, early, early days in the DCT um, sort of paradigm. I think I think I, I, you know, I agree with what what folks are saying so far on the phone. I mean, for me, these the the myths that maybe we should dig into a little bit more. Certainly, this all or nothing approach, um, you know, isn't really going to be the way of the future. You know, we have to think about things like we said, the geography, right? Um, certainly, procedures, um, but we also need to really think about our our site needs. Um, and our patient needs, really, that should be at the top of the list. Um, you know, our, our, what our patients need, how can we make trials more um, accessible to them? Um, and then for me, layered in with this, too, is really making sure we're maintaining their connection with their, their, their health care support. So their, you know, their physicians, their nurses, their all of their sort of world of of healthcare support um you know that's that's a very important connection and it's not something that we should be thinking about replacing um so you know i think that this will continue to evolve over time but um sort of the all or nothing approach is uh is is i don't think the way that the industry is going to go so Julie, the the uh, the all or nothing. If I can break it down a little, um, so I think there'll be some inside of organizations, whether sponsors, CROs, or otherwise, that may come back and say, "Well, you know, this has to be standardized. We have to follow the exact same process for every patient in every site in every country. How can we allow home visits in one geography if it's not?" if we're not able to offer it in another country. How have you navigated that with some of the studies that you're helping to lead on, it sounds like in rare disease, trying to overcome some of those challenges? Yeah, I, I would say, I, I mean, just explaining uh, that why there's variability. I think we we see there's variability in how countries respond to um, you know, protocols and, and then sometimes there need to be country specific amendments, right? So this is not that different in, in my mind. I think it's a matter of explaining clearly, um, why there may be country to country variability, but at the same time, I've been also wondering, uh, how do we try to harmonize this across countries? Um, to have a more standardized approach. So while allowing for, for flexibility, if, if that makes sense. That's a great point. And it's a great point to keep coming back to that, that this is not new. I mean, Amir, you've been around these clinical trials for a while. Countries, 
country by country, even site by site, sometimes we have a slightly different process, whether it's because of an IRB, a local regulation or otherwise. Uh, Amir, I mean, you've probably seen this for quite a while. Absolutely. I think there's always been interesting kind of um, exceptions in countries for lots of reasons. I certainly have lots of stories about those as I was in the room. So I completely agree. I think sometimes people think of these issues as you know, DCT issues, whereas as just Julie points out quite rightly, we've been really dealing with them with, you know, any traditional trials too. Kim, how do you help to manage this internally? As a leader in a large organization, I'm sure that there are a lot of um, study teams that, well, I remember even during my days at Pfizer, there's always a distribution curve. You'll have some study teams that can't wait to use these approaches and others that, well, you know, they're, they're going to they're gonna be hesitant. And this is going to be perhaps one of many reasons that they may have that hesitancy. How do you as a leader help to guide them through this? Yeah, it's a very, very good question. Um, I mean, when it comes down to it, our teams are tasked with uh, running clinical trials to bring a new medicine to the market. And that's really, it's really, you know, there's pressure, there's um, expectations that that's going to be the first thing that they're delivering. So, you know, there's a, I'd say across the board, maybe a hesitation from teams, study teams, project teams, you know, they don't want their project study messed up with something new that's untested. Um, so for sure, uh, I think in early days, we look for teams who, uh, you know, have leaders like Julie um, that are willing to take some risk knowing that things may not go perfectly. Um, we try to mitigate with backup plans, but, you know, these teams also know this is the only way to move move things forward. Um, we try to uh, have a structure in place so that we have a specific digital team. That digital team can can supplement the resourcing. Um, certainly, we don't expect a study team to uh, do their normal job and then tackle the, the the complexities of adding technology, a different model in. So we 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 try to supplement those resources with some expertise that can support. Uh, and then we, we also have a bit of governance that we put in place to make sure that we're getting that feedback. We can share it with other teams. We can have some more senior folks available as needed to, to, to try to manage difficult situations. So I think picking, picking the, right, the right people, the right places certainly can help um and and definitely having those those smes those you know subject matter experts that are there to help and support the team especially from a digital uh perspective um can be very very helpful and then as you move more into the you know you go from piloting something to really implementing and then even industrializing every uh you know a new a new a new tech a new model a new something um you get you get the you get the benefit of having maybe started a little bit more slowly with that um, that 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 bubble wrap around that team to support them. Alex, I'm sure you face some of these challenges as well from outside of the sponsor as you're trying to engage and maybe hear some of these types of concerns come up. How how do you help? walk a team through some of that change and, and embrace that we can do things a little differently, even within a particular study. 
Yeah, Craig, you know, great, great point. And to follow up on the prior points, you know, look, as a as a scientist, you know, I, I really believe that the data are key, right? We we know as as I just shared in the chat that and 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 what was going on in the chat with uh, with Jane posting that FDA is very open to these types of approaches, right? So, you know, the 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 two questions and the two areas that we try to press on with um, our partners and clients are really, you know, how good can we make the data when introducing these elements and how comfortable are you with that level of good, meaning what is good enough? And then we really defer to the key stakeholders in those uh, in those engagements to get those data and then to be able to present them to FDA, right? Because it seems like the onus is really on us and I'll say on us as, you know, as the industry to, to um, harmonize um, DCT elements with what has long been accepted as the gold standard of physical site-based trial elements. Um, so that's that's really the way that we approach it. And 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 look, I mean, across the board, there are the conservative groups, and there are the sort of more, I would say, aggressive and and maybe not first adopter uh, adopters, but sort of slightly later than first adopters that will go for it now. And then and then others that really need to assess the landscape. I mean, th there's there's a path forward. It's being followed. Uh, question is, how quickly can can we as an industry accelerate that. Jane Miles, VP of Innovation at CureBase and leader of so much of the work at DTRA. I'd seen in the chat you had a, a share here on an observation from uh, from DIA. I thought it would be great to bring you up and have you share that with the group. Thank you very much, Craig. Can you hear me okay? Perfectly. Okay, good. Um, I just wanted to make a shout out because I attended the session about planning and conducting efficient high quality DCTs at DIA. And in the question period, one of the audience members stated they were having a whole lot of challenge actually getting US sites to adopt the use of mobile nursing. And the FDA weighed in, this was, um, the speaker, she wasn't trying to represent the views of FDA as an individual, right? She was just saying, listen, if you can use a centralized approach and a single vendor, we always like to make that um, an option in trials because it makes us more comfortable about data congruity. But then I stood up and said, but what I heard was the sites are not willing to accept those global singular vendors necessarily. So what's your advice to the teams? And um, this was Suzanne Goldstein. She said, you know, it's okay either way. Just show us that you believe that the data and the way that it's collected and handled is similar. Now that, that's not the same as doing a whole DHD validation study. It's really just showing that your data collection and monitoring approach is consistent and will lead to good quality data. That's a great takeaway. And it is great to remember, you're right, that uh, this variability isn't just on a country by country basis. And uh, interesting to hear even just within 
sites within the U.S. and that perspective that was brought back. Thanks so much, Jane. Was there any other question, discussion, or concern raised in that particular session on this topic? Um, well, informally, after this session was over, quite a few people came up and kind of pushed further on this topic because I think they are hearing that the regulators are open and still frustrated that they're not seeing consistency in the will to adopt within the U.S. and beyond. So we had a little discussion informally about how important it is for us not to set a bar that is higher than what we currently expect in randomized trials. I think that's what Alex is saying too. Fabulous point. Hey, we're going to uh, open things up here right about now. It's the bottom of the hour. If you've joined us in the last few minutes, you've landed in the Decentralized Trials Club. And today we're talking about a bit of myth busting. And one of the myths we're conquering first is this spirit of all or nothing. And what do we do when we have some sites that can take certain DCT approaches and others that can't, whether because of policy, regulation, or otherwise. What myths are you most uh, concerned with trying to address or hearing most frequently? What are your thoughts on this particular myth? And what are some strategies you're helping study teams to overcome those myths? Now's a great time to take advantage of the hand raising icon in the lower right. Come on up to the stage and share your thoughts, experience and perspective. Amir? Sure. I just want to, while we wait for more questions, there's plenty of myths we could talk about for sure, is I want to dig in a bit more about what Alex said towards the end of his last comment, which was obviously the spectrum of, um, you know, companies in terms of how conservative or not they are towards DCT. So Alex, I wonder if you, from your perspective, have any thoughts around, you know, what's driving, whether it's conservatism or as you call them, more aggressive uh, approach to DCT. I mean, I have my thoughts about it, but what, what factors, I don't want to bias you by saying them first, but what factors do you think might come into that that you've noticed? Well, and uh, Amir, I appreciate that, that coming to me and I would love to hear from others, including yourself, you know, because uh, s some of this is based on, you know, direct, some of what I'm about to say is based on direct client contact and, and the rest is sort of inference through interaction. But look, I, um, what, what, what I've seen is that it's really related to the risk that let's just, let's just focus on sponsors that sponsors take with their assets and bringing them to market most efficiently. And I would say that where I've seen a lot of fast traction has sort of been in the mid-sized sponsor space <clears throat> where there are enough assets in the pipeline for um, for those companies to be a little bit more open to higher risk endeavors. And I would say that, you know, DCT elements still remain a higher risk endeavor for the exact reasons that we were just talking about, which is data quality and harmonization across the different elements of the trial. I think all of this is attainable if you have the right statistical approach, right, um, you know, from the from the get go. But that's where the most risk taking is. I would say where the most where the most conservative groups are are among the larger the larger sponsors. And it makes perfect sense. You know, they've got more on the line, bigger trials. You know, they're looking for a strategy as we as we meaning 
us on this call and in the space define the white space that is considered in air quotes DCT, um, you know, and 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 there there are slightly higher barriers there to you know to maybe not convincing but to essentially getting people across the threshold of all right, well, you know, if you get data from somebody, if you do a blood draw in the home and you do a blood draw in the clinic, they are comparable because the specimen handling is essentially the same, to, to, to use an example. So, I mean, that, that's, that's a fair bit of what we're seeing. You know, in the academic space, I would say, you know, to this group that it's, 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 really, um, it's really variable. I mean, you have, you have teams that are ready and raring to go um, in terms of modifying their protocols and, and others that are like, no, look, this is the way we've done it for 50 years. So if it ain't broke, we don't need to fix it. I appreciate that. And I will definitely give you an answer, Alex, but I think, but I'd love to ask Julie and Kim first from their perspective. I think Craig and I are kind of privileged that we get to discuss this with, you know, pretty much the whole ecosystem. But uh, Julie and Kim, what thoughts do you have about that from where you sit? So maybe I'll start, Julie, and you can jump in. Uh, you know, I think that for us, probably one of the biggest hurdles is is really the regulatory piece. Um, I think I think the blood tests are they're a good example. I don't think anyone would argue with that. And there's a sort of a continuum, right, of more and more complicated endpoints. And we just don't have assurances that the data will be accepted. Um, and you know, for some endpoints, it's really a it's really a, a process to have them validated to say that they're exactly the same in the home. So for us, that's a very circular um, discussion, sort of the chicken before the egg, and um, that's where we need to evolve. I think together as an industry with the regulators, so that we can um, take steps forward in that space. Um, really the validation of these endpoints to show that they are equivalent or, you know, <laughs> we forget that when you're running a global clinical trial, you're having different assessors across different sites. I mean, sometimes you even have different assessors within the same site assessing different patients. So, you know, we, we forget that there's probably variability that already exists in, the, in these endpoint assessments. So for me, that's really where we need to go as an industry um, is, is towards the, the validation of these endpoints um, from a, and, and making sure that they're accepted from a regulatory standpoint. I completely agree with you, Kim. And you know, living every day now, um, uh, we're, we're particularly interested in digital biomarkers for some of the ongoing programs, and we're taking the time and the care to engage with uh, regulators early to um, you know try to get their agreement and their feedback around uh, our approaches. So I think that's very important. Julie, for that to work, I imagine you have to engage extremely early in the process with your development leaders to be able to invest in the time and have some of the resources available to properly develop, qualify, validate, generate that evidence to engage with regulators around. How, how is that working? 
I would say that is spot on. Um, I would say also there at, at Sanofi, we have a, uh, there's been a large interest and investment in, um, in, in digital biomarkers in particular, among other things. So there's been the support there. I, I think it's been working well. We do engage very early. That's so critical. And it certainly seems like the regulators are open and receptive. I suppose, Kim, perhaps to some of your point a moment ago, even if we successfully engage with the FDA as an example on a new measurement, is the concern then that this is a global program and a global submission that we're planning? Do we, is there an all or nothing element to the measurements that we're using? Can we use an innovative digital measurement in a few countries, but still fall back on our conventional measure in that trial uh, for other countries? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we definitely have some examples where it's uh, we we have a split. Um, we have we have trials where maybe ten out of forty patients are having some percentage of their visits and, and even primary endpoint assessments done in the home. So, you know, we we've definitely seen good examples of of that happening. I think where it's most successful is when we do have the early the early. Um, discussions with the health authorities because then we've you know we've put it out on the table we can get some level of agreement ahead of time um you know they can even look at the plans and look at how we're planning to show equivalence um have some feedback there and and, and there's a lot more confidence um when we do things like that i mean it, there's time involved in that, right? So that that's often the that's often a factor, um, and so it's not being done maybe across the board as much as we'd like to see. You know, for us, we also have to think about we have to think about it by by indication. Um, so not just by study or by molecule, but by indication and, and seeing how much of a pipeline we have. Um, you know, we we're, we'd probably be less uh, inclined to do. A heavy investment, both time and money, if it's going to be a one, a sort of a one and done, right? So, so we definitely try to think about it at, a, at an indication and a therapeutic area level as well. So, Kim, there you bring up a very good point there, which is um, we've mentioned some kind of consortia already, but how much activity are you seeing in being able to collaborate with other companies that may be working in the same area to, you know, jointly help fund those efforts? Yeah, I think that, I mean, there's some of that activity, right, um, through either Transcelerate or IMI. I know there are some digital biomarker um, groups um, there. I, I feel like there could be more of that. Right. I mean, if I think about spirometry, it's it's the top of my list. <laughs> if we all banded together and, you know, ran some validation studies, we'd probably all be able to very quickly, um, you know, shift spirometry into 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 homes or more local to patients very quickly. So I think there is definitely room for improvement on that front. Well, as a patient with a respiratory condition myself, I fully support that <laughs> approach and you know, enabling some of that to happen. And and you know, it's interesting. I I, I, I even uh, the combination of hardware and video. Some people have asked me, well. What about that respiratory tech or somebody who is so good at coaching you on how to use 
this barometer appropriately outside of a clinical setting, but this is where the power of video combined with smart technologies can be so potent for us. It's a, it's a great area to, to call out. Now, I am conscious I did promise Alex to give our view about what he said, and I think Kevin and Julie gave a really good response from their perspective. Craig, maybe do you want to just quickly address kind of how you see the, um, the, the, where the spectrum falls and why? Uh, you know, I, I, look, I, I, um, <laughs> there are um, so many human factors involved in all of this. And, um, you know, there are lots of reasons why teams may say no or they can't do a particular thing. And sometimes those factors are based on true cultural barriers or other challenges. Sometimes it's just operationally hard in their environment. But what I find, Amir, is there are a few teams that, or leaders that are of, of study teams that are willing to say, this is just too hard and there are too many other things that I have to do. Um, it's almost like saying those words is a failure to them. And so uh -huh. they'll say other reasons for why they can't do something. And so some sometimes a, a tech solution provider or others will say, boy, they keep coming back with other challenges or hurdles. And I think to myself, or I share with them, those are, I don't want to say that they're cover stories, but you're not getting to the real reason. The real reason in many cases is it's just organizationally going to be too much work and they have other things that they have to deal with um, and they want to see their families and they want to have dinner with their kids and there's only so much they're willing to do. And so sometimes those factors are so internal, whether it's around culture or other things that that organizations and leaders need to do to properly support. I think it was Kim who mentioned having SMEs within your organization that are available, available for project teams in that large organization to help them to navigate this space, help them with um, managing legal, regulatory, SOP and other challenges, help them to, with the logistics around bringing these things to life. Um, you know, I, I, I agree that there's a large company and a small company difference in that agility, but large companies can take advantage of their critical mass and really provide an exceptional level of internal support that small companies would, would only envy um, if they're willing to commit in that area. Amir, what are your thoughts on this? Absolutely. I think you framed that really nicely and that makes perfect sense, I think, to everyone. What I would say is kind of two things. One is I think Alex made it quite, uh, you know, his sweet spot was kind of the midsize, which makes sense. If you're a biotech with one asset, you're really very careful about possibly, you know, uh, somehow impacting that with new methodologies. It makes sense. And you're probably outsourced everything anyway. And we've discussed kind of the big company scenario. I would say, honestly, at the end, they'd be on what you said, which was very well framed is at the end of the day, leadership does matter, right? So if you have even individual leaders who are passionate about something, realize that this might be the best thing for patients, I think, you know, that comes to, there's not just company factors and cultural factors, but really individual leadership. I think we as leaders, as individuals can make an impact if, you know, we really truly believe in something. So that's another factor. But hopefully, Alex, you've given, at least we've given you an answer back in having asked you to give one. <laughs> no, I, I really appreciate the group's perspective, right? You know, this is this is how we learn. Great. So, Craig, should we go on uh, to Denise? Absolutely. Denise, welcome. Welcome back. It's good to see you. Please uh, share your thought, question, perspective on today's topic. Hi there. Thanks for inviting me up. Um, I work at a large institution running clinical trials, uh, academic, and I'm also the parent of a young woman with a rare disease. So first and foremost to Julie and Kim, thank you very much and for Sanofi 
for really looking at the perspective of the patient and to understand that patients with rare diseases often are not mobile, they have other things going on, or anybody with a chronic disease uh, has issues going to a clinic. It's a headache. Um, I work in oncology. Um, a couple of things I wanted to bring up. One is from a regulatory perspective. Uh, our site, uh, the PI, has um, responsibility over everything at our site, the IRB, the lab, um, any, you know, the radiology. Um, she is responsible uh, for everything they do. What you know, what is the, what is FDA's perspective on regulatory wise, who is overseeing those, uh, the visiting nurses? Um, and then the other thing from a site perspective, uh, our budgets are huge. I work at a large institution, yet the only way I could pay my staff is from the visits I can bill for data entry and I could bill for uh, the time it takes for the patient to come to the clinic and for us to do our thing. When that's taken away, that reduces the only way I could pay my, my staff and though everything else, all the billing for the hospital procedures and such, you know, those get paid automatically, you know, that might be a slight barrier. And I'm 100%, and we already are doing a, a hybrid since COVID of um, uh, virtual visits. And we definitely have had visiting nurses on big uh, oncology trials and it's great. So I'm 100% I'm behind uh, decentralized trials. Of course, I do agree with uh, Julie, you do need to see the patient every so often, but I just wonder about the perspective of PI oversight and then that billing, because that's how I pay my, my staff, and that might be a problem. Thanks. So, Denise, one question back for you might be, is there, is there, there are some that would say that the per-visit payments to the site may be lower, but that you'd have more visits, that we'd have more patients, um, actually, is what I mean. Is So the overall per-patient revenue to the site may be lower, but could be compensated for by having more patients able to enroll and participate. Do you buy into that, or do you do you start to sense that 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 actually could fill the gap? Well, you know, it's me who has to consent that patient, so it's already me who's really bringing them in, right? I don't see consent. I I again, I'm thinking in treatment trials. Let's let, maybe I should step back from that because I do do, you know, those very complicated trials. So I would think, I don't, I don't, I don't think I would get an increase in enrollment, no. Not I mean, a, the, yeah. the, the hope would be is that because even if the follow-on visits are less burdensome, would more patients be willing or able to participate because we're able to make it more accessible for them and hopefully can impact recruitment as a result. But you're you're thinking that perhaps for the the types of studies you're running that may not that may not bear fruit. You may not see more patients able to participate to make up for any loss of revenue on a per patient basis. Maybe on the hybrid, maybe I'd pick up a couple three. It would definitely 
you know, we would definitely get rid of that. You have to be here every three weeks. You know, we could stretch it out to six weeks, it makes everybody much happier. Or we have people push out really was helpful. Um, it, would it make, I, I, I wouldn't really need to look hard, you know, would it make that big of a difference? I'm not sure. Not sure. That's I would love fair. it to be. <laughs> So um, I will call out that we have a new uh, collab that we're spinning up within DTRA that is focusing very much on many of these site-facing issues that you're calling out because they are very real and material, whether it is around budgeting for sites, whether it is around oversight and accountability as it relates to, um, say, visiting nurses and home health, where um, sites are asked to sign delegations of authority, but may not feel that they have good oversight capability for yeah, we can't, some of yeah, those solution providers. If I could add, we, we, you know, FDA's been to our site, and that's where they go for, straight to training and delegation. And I've been called out because somebody was delegated and I didn't have the training. So it's, they go straight there right now. So, and it's good. FDA's good. I really like this oversight. And as long as we do it right, we're safe and that's the way we do things. So I, I am not pushing back on FDA, I like them. They need to do this. These, these, these are very important treatments and the faster we get them done correctly, the faster we get them out to the, to the public, so. Well, you're right, Denise. Thanks. I mean, decentralized, we, we have no capacity to compromise on safety or data integrity. These are our, the true immovable objects in, in this space. I wonder, Denise, do, do you anticipate, since you're working out of a large academic center, does your institution have their own visiting nurse and home health service or capability, or would you see building one out? I don't, I don't, we don't have one. Building, you know, it's like who's, I, I would love if they did that, but it's even, you know, I, I, how can I say this? Just even getting people excited about clinical trials is kind of new, even though I've been doing this for 20 years. It's very strange sometimes because um, I'm, you know, this is what I'm dedicated to that, you know, just the awareness is we still need to get that going. So until they embrace that, clinical trials really bring in people. I mean, they're looking to us for innovation until the rest of the hospital, I don't see it. But that, it, the business, I mean, somebody should, should definitely uh, create a company and bring it up. Staffing is the issue, but uh, I, would, I would invest in that. <laughs> Amir, were you going to uh, add on this? I was just, yeah, first of all, thank you, Denise, for bringing this up. I think we definitely think it's critical that we think about the whole ecosystem, the financial viability. Now, uh, it's true that nobody owes any sector a living. However, I mean, there's no question in my mind that no matter if you fast forward even 10 years, you know, physical sites and sites in general will still be a component of clinical research. So my question would be to Kim and Julie as kind of study sponsors. Um, internally, I mean, is what is the kind of, is there thinking around how do we help sites kind of navigate this? What, what do we do on that? Is There's no question that, um, uh, you know, this is an important topic to keep sites engaged and viable, which we need to. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And so maybe first and foremost, I just want to thank Denise. She made my week. <laughs> we try to keep the patients at the center of everything we do. So to hear hear your nice feedback, um, it really, really made my week. So thank you very much for that. Thank um, you. 
Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it, it, it's something that we we spend a lot of time discussing, and um, certainly from an oversight perspective, uh, we we do have sites where they've added, you know, the the nursing staff onto the onto the fifteen seventy two and have them listed in the delegation log, and then we try to support them by getting all of the necessary training and paperwork in place, um, so that that's not a a burden for them. Um, we've also used models where we have a virtual PI that's having oversight over the uh, home nursing services. So that's been a solution that we've tried to look at. And certainly, you know, we really we really understand the financials and the business aspect of this. And um, and we've actually gone through and looked at other areas that are new right so even if a visit is being done virtually there's still work that's happening and it could be that there are you know new not to be too technical but new codes that you can pull into um, like a grant plan and a site contract that can help to support the new and different activities that have to be performed at the site um could i could could um visiting nurses groups or you know companies could they get sort of a certification like labs do like a clia because then it's easy, then i have no problem then i don't have to worry about you know signing them onto the delegation log because they have that certification that is you know i know if i add a lab who has the right licensures i'm okay on my 1572 so maybe something like that where these visiting nurses are certified and so now I don't have to worry about oversight. They, they're certified. I add them to my 1572, I'm good. And training, so. That would be my suggestion, thanks. Yes, pr probably a, um, a, a larger topic than, than we have time for today, right? And, <laughs> right. And we need, uh, yeah, yeah, reg yeah, yeah. I go for big. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I like it. I like it. <laughs> but that's how we set up topics for future yeah. gatherings. And so that one is a great one for us to put in the queue and start to uh, and start to set up. Jane, I think you had also uh, shared in the chat an observation from uh, from that same session. I did. And perhaps it's not a surprise. We all know a DCT guidance is coming. What gave me pause was I got a little bit worried that maybe we're going to get more confined by what is in the guidance. And and that was just an inference. It wasn't a statement of fact. But I kind of do like the fact that there's a little bit of room to explore who actually has to be in what forms right now as long as you can demonstrate they've been adequately trained to be part of the trial. Um, so I was hoping that not everyone involved in a DCT trial would end up on the 1572. I'm not sure that that'll be the case, but it sort of gave me the feeling we were going in that direction. That, that would be unfortunate, I think, in a lot of ways. I think, uh, you know, the signals that I've heard from other forum with FDA involved has been if staff are performing clinical activities for which they're already trained, they would not need to be on a 1572 as compared with 
activities that do require study-specific training. Um, I imagine we'll see if uh, signals pull in other directions. I know ASCO has also been very um, uh, interested in seeing 1572 clarity uh, coming out uh, so that community and colleges could have better ways to participate going forward. I know that uh, Brad put it, had put in the chat, and I was trying to get him up here so we could. I was trying to understand. Um, he was saying, "I don't think the value of DCT has been made clear to sites and adoption will continue to be an issue." Um, I wasn't sure if that meant uh, the value of DCT to sites financially or to patients. So I wasn't sure exactly what he meant, but it's definitely. So Brad brings up the point that you know many sites are still. I think just like uh, adoption in pharma, there's a sort of spectrum of adoption to sites, right, to DCT. I mean, we've certainly seen um, several site groups be very early on in coming, becoming members of DTRA and fully understanding that they need to be part of the conversation and drive the conversation, whereas other sites have definitely been, you know, much more reluctant and fearful of DCT. So that's definitely that adoption. Uh, it's part of the myths I guess we're talking about today is, you know, what, what's a myth, what isn't, and what myths are preventing adoption, right? Well, and, and, and Amir, if I, if I can comment on that perhaps while we're waiting, um, you know, I, I think that there is a big element of that. You know, I do think that sites especially, you know, look, I mean, clinical trial sites are, are typically clinical practices or branches of clinical practices that are focused on that aspect of the work to the point that somebody else made earlier, you know, they're really only now becoming, you know, excited about and wise to the benefits, the financial benefits, as well as the sort of societal benefits of, of participating in, in clinical development and clinical research. So, you know, I think to the point of not knowing the value of decentralized elements, I, I think, A, those points have not been made clear. And, and I think there's also a lack of clarity. I mean, you know, we are working on a study with Rutgers to try and actually put numbers to, you know, the value of certain uh, DCT elements, particularly for sites, so that they become more open. And, you know, to, to Denise's point earlier, you know, understand better in specific use cases what the value to decentralized elements would be in a way that doesn't reduce the value to the physical clinical trial site. Great. I think Brad, Brad uh, is in clinic, so you can't jump in, but I really do appreciate him you know, participating in the chat, so that's great. And also calling out, as he did there, that uh, 1572 variability and inconsistency even within conventional sites. and where study coordinators are listed and not listed. It's, it seems so mundane to say that we need 1572 modernization or clarity, but they really will stand in the way. And uh, pulling right back to where we started in this conversation, the DIA exhibit floor, mobile units, retail pharmacy, the announcements of Walgreens entering the space alongside CVS as, as participants in the clinical trial ecosystem, where will all these new stakeholders fit as we start to add additional layers around? Are they um, additions to existing research sites and meant to be supporters of them? And if so, are they taking revenue or complementing in some way? Or are they meant to be investigator sites? And where do they fit on the 1572 going forward? I think these are all great topics for us to explore in the, uh, in the weeks ahead. In the immediate weeks ahead, however, we are going to go to uh, to reruns, and so we'll we'll be posting some of the most popular, uh, most listened to gatherings here on Clubhouse over the 
last few weeks, and we'll do that over the course of uh, July, pick up again later in the summer together, and we'll share updates on LinkedIn and Twitter later in the summer. In the meantime, I want to thank Alex, Kim, and Julie for setting up today's topic and stepping forward and helping to lead today's conversation. And of course, Jane and Denise for contributing, and Brad in the chat for contributing additional thoughts and perspective here. Remember, if you have other topics that you'd like to see us cover, let Amir and I know and we'll get those set up in the queue. In the meantime, be sure to follow other folks that you're seeing in the room here today. They're sharing your interest and passion on today's topic. Take a listen to past episodes and we'll share some of those online. Amir, any other closing thoughts today? Um, just to say, uh, Kim and Julie, thank you for joining the Clubhouse thing. It's not as uh, scary as it looks and people are pretty friendly. I'm, I'm glad that Denise was able to make your week, Kim. <laughs> Thanks for having us. Yes, thank, thank you. you. Learned a lot. Thanks all. Bye-bye. Stay well. <laughs>